0: Welcome to Because You Need to Know. I am Edwin K. Morse, president and founder of Pioneer Knowledge Services. This series is your digital resource of valuable conversations with nonprofit and knowledge management enthusiasts from across industries and from around the globe. Hey
1: everybody, my name is Kevin Moffitt. I live in Northern Virginia, about 30 minutes outside the traffic jams of DC. Currently work at Valencore. It's a defense solutions company I co-founded with my business partner, Chuck McLean, last year. We operationalize emerging technology, um, really focused on data interoperability challenges, working command and control and intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, which is referred to as C2ISR. I've worked in C2ISR for about 28 years, first as an intelligence analyst, and since about 96, focused on developing tools for analysis and decision support, really broad spectrum communities that are supported over the years uh, but the thread that's been consistent is bringing people together connecting them through their data sometimes that's been command echelons with operating units between the u.s and nato uh, sometimes between the military and non-governmental organizations that are operating in the area you know getting data to the right place at the right time has helped save lives we talk a lot about companies but at the end of the day it's really about the trust that's extended to the individuals, the person that's actually sitting there side by side with the customer, tackling those challenges. I envision a future that features advances in clean production and intelligent management of energy. That's not my area of expertise, but it's my area of great concern. I see climate change as the top threat to our national and global security. The effective and efficient storage and delivery of clean power is critical. But more importantly, from an overall global perspective, A transition to clean energy is a must. I stay connected to people by making connecting itself a priority. It's relatively new for me, and I'm still working on it. I spent almost two decades with one company, but during that time, network just kind of happened, you know, based on corporate priorities, the daily business. uh, I didn't reach out much beyond that. It's easy to tell yourself that there's not a lot of time to do much more.
0: Out of the realm of what you're passionate about, how do you best affect people to begin to connect? As you alluded to, that connection piece, connecting to people can be a challenge for some. So how would an organization strengthen that muscle? Well, I think it really starts with a foundation of trust.
1: Most of the barriers that I've seen over the years aren't technical barriers, they tend to be cultural barriers. Now you've probably seen the same thing as you work KM across organizations. It's about trusting the team, the individuals that are part of that knowledge enterprise. I mean, we think about KM as being managing the data and the information, but it's really about the enterprise, right, at the end of the day. And it's about having trust in the folks that you're working with, also having in extending that trust to the folks that are coming in to try to help support the solutions that are being provided. So you know I I think you really have to work it a step at a time, Mm. and you have to be really careful, especially in my business of providing technical solutions, to not oversell um, what you're going to deliver, because I think that's the fastest way to lose credibility and to just basically erode any trust that you've built. These are difficult challenges, right? If, If they weren't difficult, they would have been solved but when we talk about building an effective and efficient enterprise it's a step-by-step process and so what i typically do if i'm looking at the problem set is to make sure number one we all have an appreciation for and an understanding of the problems that we're trying to solve when you sit down with a client or, or anybody and you're talking about the challenges of an organization they kind of get a sense for the issues but they may not really fully understand what the problem is. And so the first part is just having an open mind collectively to saying, Hey, what are we trying to solve here? So how do you approach that analysis step to make sure nothing gets skipped? I think first of all, you have to take that view that you can't go in thinking you have the answers. That's the first thing Overpromising, as I mentioned, but then coming in with the blinders on to say, Hey, this is how I solved it here. So I know it's going to work for you here, and, and oh that, yeah,
0: absolutely, cookie cutter, right? Yeah, hey, co- let's make good use of my knowledge, and we'll just transform it to your outfit, and it'll be it'll work great.
1: Yeah. So the key to understanding that is making sure that you understand the nuances of the culture that you're working with. Every company is different, has different types of cultures, different processes for how data flows. It's about making sure. That you're you're getting the all the stakeholders right not just the decision makers but treating all the stakeholders as equally important in this process right regardless of whether they're the ones making the final decision or not and making sure that you appreciate their perspective and, and again and organizations within themselves have microcultures cultures and, and lots of different dynamics and so coming in from the outside it's really difficult to get a feel for that up front it takes time and honestly, you may never get the full picture, well, but you got to work toward that on a stepwise
0: basis. You want to get an enterprise picture, but don't you feel that sometimes when you're dealing with a certain work culture, that there are some folks at the top of the ladder that say, oh, you don't need to talk to those folks. I, I'm telling you the straight up truth. This, this is all you need to get going. How do you navigate challenges of fiefdoms and, and all that old style mentality of how organizations work?
1: So the approach I take is the same one uh, that I took when we worked together back in Iraq. And it's at the time, if you're working for the military, you've got the commander and and there's the guidance, just like a CEO or the executives. And this is where we want to go as a vision. And then you've got so many different pieces that are orchestrated to make that happen. I think it's about harmonizing to say, okay, we understand where the boss needs us to go as an organization, but what's your piece of that? Are you a drummer? Are you playing the saxophone? Do you like jazz? And, 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 and actually the commander is like, hey, I'm, we're doing classical yeah. music here, right? It's about understanding those differences and having honest discussions at all levels and not being afraid. I think a lot of times people are afraid to go back to the boss and say, look, understand your vision here, but what you're talking about, we've got to look at some adjustments because the culture or your capabilities or whatever doesn't fit. And I think the more frequently you can have those vector checks, and have those honest discussions, uh, the more successful you're going to be at working it. And again, it's, it's a process. It takes
0: time. I like that idea of the vector checks, right? You try to buffer yourself from assumptions and you really do an evidence-based investigation. Uh, I want to go back to your topic of trust between people, because in the back of my mind, that brought up the concept of trust of content. You can have trust in yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. That helps build that content delivery mechanism or quicker answers that, you know, you've got somebody, I know a guy, right? In the world of AI, when we start to alleviate the personal connection as a source and have more data and information brought to us, how does trust evolve to content or source?
1: Yeah. Wow. That is a great question. And I think one that everybody has been struggling with. On top of that, add on the policies of who can access what data, um, because that even further complicates it. But to get back to, you know, the specific question, it can't be a black box. If you're looking at algorithms that are developed, whether it's machine learning to do maybe object detection in video analytics, you really have to understand. And I think it really forces people that are in that decision making capacity to have an understanding of the data, maybe not all of the details, but enough to understand this is the pedigree of the data that I'm, I'm working with. Because a lot of times if you don't understand that and you're making decisions off of data and you don't understand to your point, you're going to make the wrong decisions. You, you're only going to have trust, and I do think it's going to take some time. To a large extent, AI in a lot of different contexts, in a lot of different implementations has been oversold, and as a result. There's been this promise of what's going to be delivered. And now there's an understanding that it's a lot of work to, number one, field it in a way that's really going to give you results, and then to train the algorithms and to make sure that it's an effective part and a cohesive part of your environment. And when a decision maker an analyst or somebody gets that data, they understand enough about where it came from to know the pedigree. One of the big challenges as we look at how our data ecosystems have evolved we don't do a good job at looking at the aspect of truth decay, right? So over time, there is truth decay with information.
0: Not, that he's not saying anything to do with a dentist, everybody. He's saying truth, truth, decay, decay. not tooth. Yeah. Decay. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> These are things that we need to start talking about because I might have the best data today and if I look at it a year from now, it might be completely wrong. If we just look for example, at the pandemic and how quickly information has evolved in these kind of dynamic scenarios
0: so you're using the term truth decay as the it, it's basically a fact check on a timeline right it could be a fact today but tomorrow may not be is what you're saying yeah yeah and if you th- or it may just change in dimensions somehow well it could be a,
1: an opinion today and it's not an opinion of somebody's tomorrow if you think about like an old quote being taken out of context from somebody and well like as we look at these vast amounts of data that we're collecting, you have to be careful because that time element. So if I look at my really stupid, simple example, if I look at my weather app in the morning today and it's raining, then I'm going to put on my boots and my raincoat. I'm not going to get up tomorrow and put on my boots and my raincoat because there is truth decay, right? That yeah, information's yeah. now yesterday. Yeah. And that's a simple example. It gets a lot more complicated when you're talking about these big data lakes and ecosystems and data fabrics that are being introduced.
0: I like the idea and we need to step that out to the next range, which is decay of knowledge, the decay. And let's take it through the hoops, data, information, and knowledge. They all can have an effect, but the first trickle effect is going to be data because that'll affect everything else. Just like in your example, right? If you wake up tomorrow and you're like, well, yesterday it was raining. So I'll just get suited up and ready to go without checking your data. The data is going to continually change. So it's almost like a roulette wheel of knowledge on a continual basis because it's just constantly in flux. Right. There's a variable factor of truth decay
1: that applies differently to different types of data, right? Weather is just an obvious one that could change if you're in Colorado every 10 minutes, if you're somewhere else it may be more consistent and you might have you know but it really depends on the kind of data and if you don't understand that when you're looking at the data again you're going to look at trends which may no longer be trends because things that the the underlying assumptions the underlying data that have have been the foundation of that knowledge that you're building have changed and so you've got to have a framework or frameworks in place to enable you to adjust and account for that.
0: So it sounds like the big new skill all employers should be shopping for is critical thinking. You know, critical thinking is the foundation
1: to your point of everything that we're talking about. And it goes back to a comment you made earlier about not making assumptions. And it's really hard, we all do it, right? We all do it, but when you're looking at this, you have to, again, take that step back and say, let's let's clear out the assumptions and really kind of dig into this and see what are we really talking about here? And I think more and more, you have more people in organizations that have the training to do some of this, but we know we're not there yet. Yeah. Not at all. It's 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 an evolution um, that we're just, I think, in the initial stages of.
0: And it's going to be a constant business operation to keep forecasting of what the shift is going to be next to align business operations and data continually. There's part of the issue is I think that we have traversed from steam engines to assembly lines to office what we assumed office work was, which was file folders and file cabinets. And in that storage of data, everything is shifted. I I mean, it just the concept of itself is now, it's not static anymore. Data information and knowledge is never gonna be static like it was 70 years ago. So the iterations of that have begun to shift from yearly to quarterly to, seconds, milliseconds of continuation, updates, update, update, right? We never had that capacity before to have continual updates. I can remember a show called The Addams Family, Gomez, was he had a, a, remember the ticker to watch the stocks? That was a precedent to knowledge Accessible, I guess accessibility of immediate knowledge. Just such a non-issue now that we're continually updated with everything. And I wanna go back to the AI piece because I think a lot of people hear AI and they get a fuzzy picture in their head of what the heck is that? I'll give you a good example of what it looks like in the consumer space. Recently, we were looking for a new toaster oven and my wife finds one that has an internal camera in the oven and you just put the food in, the camera recognizes whatever that is, and boom, it cooks it to whatever it's supposed to cook. And I I don't know if it's really AI or they got a guy looking through the camera saying, oh, that looks like pizza, we'll set it for 10. You know, I don't know, but it could be, I don't know. It's really that concept of somebody else taking responsibility for action in AI world that I think scares a lot of people. You know, the initial stages of the information
1: age have been applying technology to automating an industrial error set of processes right and there's there's a lot of writing on this and and really what we're talking about now is truly being in the information age where that cycle that cyclical companies do things on cycles is being disrupted because of the ability to to have a camera in your toaster that's running some algorithm and it's detecting and setting the temperature for you and and cooking it automatically it is going to radically alter business cycles, right? It already has, but we haven't really realized the potential of it because again, we're looking at this is how we've always done business and it's like any enterprise, it takes time. One of the reasons I think startups have been so successful, they don't have that legacy of industrial era processes that they have to automate the bureaucracy. So they're able to just get in there and really focus. The the successful ones are using data to really drive their investments very agile in a way that just wasn't possible in the past. So I think we're gonna see more of the transformation of organizations and to do that, you truly have to have a knowledge organization, a learning organization to do that, that's willing to factor in risk and make those decisions based on a relevant and current set of underlying data.
0: And I hear a little drum music in the background, which you can't hear because I got a guy over here. What's your knowledge management definition?
1: I really, again, as I mentioned just a minute ago, I look at the enterprise as the knowledge enterprise, and knowledge management is the effective alignment and planning and execution of that enterprise. I see knowledge management as being everybody's job. You know, everybody has a role to play. Everybody is part of that knowledge enterprise. My definition and my background is doing decision support systems and things. You know, there's a pretty broad application and people didn't really necessarily consider that KM in the past, but it really is. You know, making sure that that organization has access to all the data, all the information that can build that knowledge base they need to be effective and efficient.
0: I like your idea of how that lays in responsibility across the organization, not just one person or a section leader does KM. It's everybody's got a hand in it. What are the three attributes you would go and uh, hire for that feed a good knowledge ecosystem?
1: So again, you mentioned critical thinking that's foundational collaboration and curiosity, and they go hand in hand, really um, having a team that is curious and interested is going to pay uh, dividends. And then I look for grit. You know, the, These challenges take time to solve, uh, especially in our business, a lot of times in very austere kind of locations, like where we met up at Spiker back in the day. I think the successful teams are the ones, they don't just have the talent and the innovation, but the team members really have the grit to deliver on the commitment. So those are really three factors
0: that I I look for. Well, I like that. And if you could send me the list of questions you ask these folks in interviews so you can determine their... Uh, level of uh, that would be helpful because I think that stumps a lot of people. How do you factor in critical thinking, Do You, you don't give them a math quiz or yeah. you know maybe a, a recipe. Well, we or something. we kind of do. Oh, do you? Okay. We we have a <laughs> well, so we have a development
1: environment and it's got a range of tools in it. And so basically, we run it's our Beowulf cluster. So it's our development uh, ecosystem. It's a development operations center, and we could bring a candidate on. Um, virtually side-by-side and we can provide challenges and and they're not necessarily coding challenges. They could be data challenges and we can see how a prospective applicant responds to that, how they communicate.
0: Oh, I like that. That sure beats the sit down with a question and answer kind of thing with a committee. You know, the, the, the formal way people do hiring somewhat. You're basically throwing them in the fire and seeing how they perform. Basically, yes
1: we walk through it. We, we really want to understand how well do they structure what they do? How effective are they at it? And can they communicate what it is that they're doing? Because on a team, especially today, virtually communication, as you know, is just in, in completely critical. So yes, we're throwing them somewhat into the, into the fire and seeing how they perform.
0: <laughs> I think that's the best way to do it because you really, you want them to be in a practical sense And see where they're at practically, not dressed up in a suit and feeling goofy sitting in front of a committee of folks asking questions, be it face-to-face or Zoom. It's more, I I would feel more comfortable as the applicant to be able to say, hey, here's some, you know, we'll throw you in this live beta test and we'll see how you do. I, I, I think that's more challenging and more engaging. Well, and it's also not just about
1: there's a right answer. There might be multiple right answers, and so the way the person gets to the answer, and even if they can't answer it, it's okay uh, because it's about the process. And you know, nobody you hire is going to be able to solve everything or do everything, but it's really about understanding how they how they fit into the team, how they respond. So yeah, it's uh, the approach that we're taking.
0: Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Thanks for being here today. And yes, we did start off our history some 20 some years ago in Southwest Asia, doing stuff uh, in an intelligence gathering, sharing kind of methodology that you were pioneering at the time. Well, thank so you. Thanks
1: for making time to be here. I appreciate. Uh, what you're doing at Pioneer. It's exciting stuff and listening to the podcast and look forward to hearing more as you move forward.
0: So thank you. Because You Need to Know is designed to bring people's experience and their knowledge forward to be shared. I'm Edwin K. Morris and I thank you for joining in to listen to another conversation brought to you as a public service of Pioneer Knowledge Services. A nonprofit tax exempt organization with a charitable knowledge management purpose. Find us online at pioneer ks.org and add your voice to the conversation on Facebook.